So brothers and sisters, here in the month of August, we are breaking from the sermon series on Romans and uh, looking into God's Word at Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. And uh, here we uh, are taught uh, the armor of God. Uh, This is a phrase, a title that comes from the text itself because verse 10 and into verse 11 of Ephesians 6 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God. So it's the armor of God here in the month of August, and uh, let's just review a little bit where we started. Uh, From the beginning, we heard the call to be strong, to be strong, and and we sought to make sense of that because uh, uh, how can you just command somebody to be strong? Uh, Strength is not something that you just decide to have. Uh, Strong is not something that you just decide to be. Um, and the Apostle Paul is no fool. He, he, he's not just telling us to be strong, but to be strong in the Lord, that is, in Christ, and in the strength of His might. So this is not just inspirational language. Uh, it is inspirational language, but it's not just that, uh, as if to say, go team, go, Uh, Rather, the armor of God is the application of all that Paul has already written in his letter to the Ephesians. I've not used the illustration yet, but uh, consider that if someone gave you a large sum of money, uh, they might follow it up with the encouragement to go use your money. (laughs) Uh, It's your money. Don't sit around here. Uh, acting like a poor person. Uh, you used to be poor, now you're rich, so go and act like a rich person. Uh, spend your money, use your money uh, as you live your life now as a rich person. And this is what Paul is saying. Um, the call is not to acquire the armor of God. The call is not to find some armor within ourselves uh, as if we could just dream up a couple million dollars. Uh, the call instead is to put on the armor of God. It's already yours, uh, and, and it's yours in Christ. So put it on. Uh, imagine being gifted with a, a new set of clothes. Uh, what are you doing sitting here in your, in your ragged clothes when a new set of clothes is hanging in your closet? Don't want to offend anybody in what you're wearing here today, but uh, uh, why are you sitting here naked even when you could be radiantly dressed in the clothes that Christ has provided you? Well, of course, here in Ephesians 6, it's not just clothing, but it's armor. And, uh, and that's very significant, armor rather than just clothing, um, Yes, the clothing that Christ provides us covers our shame. Uh, Think of the parable of the wedding feast. Uh, In Matthew 22, when a a king, the master of the house, uh, uh, gave a wedding feast, he he invited many guests, but they all declined to come and to enjoy the blessings of the feast. Um, So the king, the master of the house, sent out his servants to call others to come uh, so that there would be no empty chair. 
And, uh, and yet there were some who snuck in. Uh, they were recognized by the king by their lack of proper clothing so that he cast them out. And he cast them out even, as, uh, as Jesus tells the parable, into outer darkness. So yes, our, our salvation in Christ covers us, covers us, uh, and takes away uh, uh, our shame from being ill-clothed. At least it should. But the clothing, the clothing that Christ provides us is also armor. Because even as we enjoy the wedding feast, yet we are meant to be dressed for battle. Right now, we are like the on-duty, or maybe I should say off-duty, police officer who comes to an event wearing his uniform and his protective gear. Uh, We are at leisure here, uh, but we must also be dressed for battle. So are you ready to to go to war for Christ? Are, Are you ready to live for his glory in your life? Well, then put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to uh, stand against the schemes of the devil. But don't go looking for your own armor. Your own armor will be like aluminum foil. It's interesting, we used to say tin foil, now we say aluminum foil. Uh, so, but our own armor is like aluminum foil against the, the devil. So make sure you have uh, the armor of God, which is yours in Christ and by the gospel. Even more, decide. Decide now if you, if you really want to fight at all. If you don't want to fight, well, then don't waste your time. Eat, drink, and be merry in this life and just go your way into sinful pleasure and defeat and death and hell. Otherwise, put on the whole armor of God in order to live for Christ. So for those who are ready to fight, the first point is the call to stand. We are looking uh, most in particular at verses 14 and 15. uh, And verse 14 begins with the call, Stand, therefore. But in the preceding verses, Paul writes, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And in verse 13, it says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So even before we get to verse 14, we already have how many references to standing. By my my count, there are four calls or references to standing. Even before we get to, to verse 14, where it says to stand, therefore, by way of the armor of God, inventoried in the next several verses. It raises an important point and a, and a, maybe a, a seeming conflict um, in the teaching of God's word. Uh, in, verse, uh, in Matthew 11, we hear our Lord calling us, I, I hope we've all heard it and answered his call to come to me, and I will give you rest. 
Jesus certainly is, uh, was not a, a bait-and-switch salesman. Uh, he didn't promise us life on a bed of roses, as we say. But here he says, come to me and I will give you rest. And he even emphasizes the, the, the struggle of life, the struggle to live each day under the law of God. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. It really fits with, uh, with Adam being banished from the Garden of Eden uh, in the beginning. Uh, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So said God as he cursed Adam for his sin in in Genesis 3.19. And then, wonder of wonders, the gospel, along comes Jesus and says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Another passage to consider is uh, Genesis 5, verse 28, which records the birth of Noah. Do you remember what the name Noah means? It means rest. When Noah was born to a man named Lamech, uh, his, his father gave him the name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. It shows us that there were those who were looking. There will always be those who are looking with the birth of each child, wanting uh, or waiting for the one that God uh, has promised the Savior who would crush the head of the serpent. The father of Noah hoped, at least, uh, that his son would be the one who would give rest to the people of God. Of course, Noah wasn't the one promised by God. He was a good man. He was a man righteous by faith, a man uh, even who gives us an early picture of Christ and the salvation God provides us in him. But indeed, only Christ is the one who could have said, and and he still says today, and he says it to you, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And consider how Jesus can say this and and really mean it. In other words, uh, how can Jesus say, uh, say it so that it really counts? Think about uh, having some great task to do around the house, um, and yet your spouse or your child or your parent uh, says to you, come and sit down with me. Uh, the work is done. I have, uh, I have done it, and uh, I even have a meal provided for you. So you laugh, and you even scoff, and, and you say, yeah, right, sit down. This is you know, there's too much work to be done for me to sit down. I only have a couple hours left before, uh, before uh, uh, bedtime, and I collapse into, into bed. Uh, so how can Jesus say? How can Jesus say and mean it when he says, come to me and rest? Well, is he making little of the work to be done? Is he just tempting us to sit down when there really is work left to be done? 
Well, no, that's, that's the devil's place uh, to make little of the work to be done or to tempt us to sit down when there's, when there's work left to be done. So instead, Jesus is the Savior. Uh, he is the one who says, Come to me, all you who are, are, are all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and I will give you rest. So not only does he repeat the promise to, to give us rest, but, but Jesus makes it clear that our rest is the result of his lordship and his labors. He is our Lord. He is the one who has defeated our enemy for us. He is the one who provides for our security, who meets our need. That's what a Lord is, provided it be a good Lord. A good Lord, a caring Lord, is one who cares for his people, the one who meets the needs of his people, the one who defeats the enemies of his people and gives us rest. Again, it's fitting that Paul begins with the, the belt of truth, if you re- remember from last time. And, and there's a certain logic that, that we must gain by starting with truth. Because now we can move on to the other, the other pieces of armor with greater understanding Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, writes Paul, and next, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Once again, is this simply an inspirational image? Uh, Or is there more to be understood by the breastplate of righteousness? Given the call to be strong in Christ and given the context of truth, Surely we must understand the the breastplate of righteousness as our justification by faith in Christ. Here I want to be honest and to admit that there is some disagreement among commentators. Uh, The question is whether Paul uh, means the righteousness that is by faith, that is the righteousness of Christ credited to the sinner, or whether Paul means the righteousness of an obedient life. And and I want to make the case that Paul means the righteousness that is by faith. In other words, Paul isn't saying that it's our obedience that protects us, and here's why. First, again, the context of the armor of truth, the armor of God is truth. Paul begins with the belt of truth. Then he lists the breastplate of righteousness. Then after that, the gospel of peace. So it would seem inconsistent to go from truth to our obedience and then back to the the truth of the gospel. Instead, as it comes between the belt of truth and and the gospel of peace, doesn't it make more sense that the, the breastplate of righteousness is referring to that that imputed righteousness of Christ. Second, neither does it make sense that our, that our righteousness through obedience would serve to protect us in the battle for 
obedience and faithfulness. That would seem to be the cart before the horse, so to speak, or a matter of circular logic. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, that is, live a life of righteousness in order to protect yourself in your fight to be righteous. Let's remember that Paul is using this metaphor of doing battle as a summary to his instruction, beginning with Ephesians 4, starting with Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul begins to apply the instruction of the first three chapters, calling his readers to a life of obedience. And now in the sixth chapter, Paul describes the struggle for obedience and faithful Christian living as a battle. So why would Paul call his readers to be righteous in order to win the battle to be righteous. And what comfort would that give us to have to rely on our own obedience to protect us from the evil one? Third, that Paul means the righteousness of Christ credited to us by our faith in him fits perfectly with the opening words of this passage. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Like we said last time, here is one of those statements that requires us to ask, well, what does that mean? How can Paul command us to be strong? How can we be strong in someone else's strength? We can be strong in Christ's strength by remembering what the strength of Christ has done for us. And, and how can we be strong except that we are strong by what Christ has done for us? The strength of Christ has justified us. By his strength, Christ resisted the temptation of the, of the evil one, and he has achieved a righteousness that he shares with us. By his strength, Christ endured the agony of Gethsemane. And he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. By his strength, Christ declined to defend himself in an unjust court and allowed himself to be convicted. By his strength, Christ carried his cross to Calvary. And there he perfected obedience to his Father by dying in our place. By the strength of his might, Christ saved us. And the call of Ephesians 6 is that we should be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Can we see it? So when Paul calls us to put on the breastplate of righteousness, surely he means that we must remember and claim the righteousness of Christ credited to us by faith. And isn't this exactly the armor that we need? Isn't the righteousness of Christ the motivation for all our obedience and, and our faithfulness to Christ? Romans 6, verse 20 and following. 
can't get away from Romans. <laughs> Romans 6, verse 20 and following says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification. And in Philippians 3, Paul rejoices to have the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And the end is that we may know Christ in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You see, that's, that's what a life of obedience finally is. That's what it is to be faithful to Christ. It's a matter of sharing his sufferings even becoming like him in his death. And what is it that makes us willing to to suffer, willing even to die for Christ? Well, it's the righteousness of Christ over our hearts like like a breastplate. It's the knowledge and the conviction and the assurance that the credit of Christ's perfect obedience is ours by faith. So here is the terribly practical nature of doctrine. Uh, and how can it be said that doctrine is dead? How, how can it be said that uh, doctrine uh, is unnecessary? The truth is that we will soon be dead without doctrine. And how can it be said, I, well, I, I, I don't go for doctrine. Instead, just give me something relevant. Relevant? What could be more relevant? What could be more practical than the doctrine of justification and the imputed righteousness of Christ? It's what fills us with joy and gratitude. It's finally what what makes it the case that we would rather die than deny Christ by by our disobedience. It's what makes us hate the dirt and the squalor of sin, because we wear, we wear the white robe of Christ's righteousness, and it's our answer to the accusations of the evil one when he throws our sin in our face. And he says, look at your sin. You're not good enough. We answer, you're right. But Christ is good. And his Steadfast love endures forever. And that brings us finally, at least for this time, to the gospel of peace. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, you got it on yet? The belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And then in verse 15, shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace, their shoes for your feet, brothers and sisters. And we've already started this point, haven't we? Because it's it's by wearing this it's by putting on this, this belt of truth. It's by wearing this breastplate of righteousness. It's by remembering and, and claiming the righteousness of Christ. 
that we have peace. Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the righteousness that is ours as we but trust in Christ for it. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What are we doing here otherwise? What, what are we doing coming before God each and every Lord's Day if we don't have peace with this God? And it's a verse in Romans 5 verse 1 that makes it clear that the peace we really need is peace with God. We, we need to be at peace with each other as best we can. But ultimately, we need to be at peace with God. And that peace only comes, that true peace can only be found through faith in Christ. Why? Because Christ reconciles us to God. God, uh, Christ has made propitiation for our sin by his blood, and, and he shares the credit of his perfect obedience with us. And the result is what Romans 8 verse 1 says. Again, we can't hardly get away from Romans, but there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Have you really under, understood the, the significance of that statement? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God will never con- condemn a perfect person. And that's who you are in Christ. So peace be with you, says Christ. How can he say that? Because he had gone to the cross. And there he had made propitiation for our sins. Peace be with you, said Christ. But here in Ephesians 6, the gospel of peace is, representing, is represented as shoes. And why is that? It would, it would seem that Paul has it mixed up. Shouldn't it, shouldn't it be the helmet of truth? Because that's our head. No, truth is the belt around our middle that holds everything else in place. And shouldn't it be the gloves of, of righteousness? Because righteousness is what we do with our hands. No, righteousness is the gift of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And shouldn't it be the breastplate of peace? Because our peace is what we have in our hearts. Well, no, the gospel of peace is the shoes for our feet. Because it's the peace of God in Christ that lifts us to our feet. It puts us on our feet. And it gives us the courage to go forth and to fight for Christ. Like truth in the head, peace certainly resides in our hearts. But the reason that God gives us peace is to prepare us for action. To prepare us to stand firm on our feet. As Paul says over and over and over again, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand 
in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness. If we're ready to face this week that lies ahead of us, then it will only be because we are wearing the shoes that are ours by the gospel of peace. So, how much of the armor of God are you wearing? Let us put it on. It's ours. <clears throat> it's ours in Christ. We don't have to go find it. We don't have to we don't have to go buy it. We don't have to we don't have to earn it. It's ours in Christ. So let us put it on. Put on the full armor of God. And indeed, let us go forth into this week living for Christ, our Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to understand your word, that it's not, it's not coming to us as mere inspirational language, but that it's giving us truth and truth that is found in Christ, and truth that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. Help us to put on your truth, to put on the armor that you have provided us in Christ Jesus, and help us indeed to fight and to win in the week that lies ahead and throughout our full Christian lives that we live for Christ, our beloved Savior. In his name we pray, amen.